You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Again, I'm going to start differently this time than yesterday. Yesterday I started with just with hardcore philosophy. Today I'm going to tell you two stories. And hopefully those stories will help um, shape, shape the learning. One is a story about a, um, a wonderful, ugly woman um, who you know, had all sorts had wonderful heroic stories in her past, um, Holocaust stories, and then developed um, advanced Alzheimer's. To the point where um, you'd wake up every morning and you'd have to have signs on the wall telling you what day it was. And she would tell you the same stories. She would tell you the same stories over and over again. Uh, you would not remember. She had told you all those sorts of things. She was very, very, very from. She had lived her life, you know, with complete fidelity to halacha. She wasn't learned, but she was very, very from. And the question that came to me was: her attention span was, let's say, maximum eight minutes. But she was aware for those eight minutes of what was going on and where she was and who she was, and it was Purim. And the question, when she couldn't go to shul, and the question was asked was, could a person come to the house and lay Megillah for her and make a bracha on that Kriya, knowing that there's no way she would actually finish hearing the Megillah all the way through? Her attention span is not long enough. So can one make a bracha for somebody who in the moment has every intention of fulfilling the mitzvah? If she asks, could she make the bracha? Right at the time, she, right, at the time she's, perfectly, um, right, she's, you know, she's perfectly with it in the moment. She knows there's a mitzvah. She knows, right, she knows that God commanded her. She wants to fulfill the mitzvah. But you and I know that she never will be able to. But she doesn't know that. So can you make the bracha first? So that's that's the first question, I, the first story I want you to think about, and it frames the whole question of how halacha treats people whose mental capacities no longer enable them to function fully within halacha. Okay, second question, second issue, and this is really the story that drove um, my learning in the summer at Mishrash this past summer, our group learning, where my students hopefully will, and mine will come out in the next month if the shir survives the next few weeks. Um, story of a student of mine, um, Harvard grad, um, became a psychologist, and then last year at some point in Elul, had a psychotic break, where she suddenly became radically paranoid, believed that the world was out to get her, and was hospitalized for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Now, she wasn't totally raving mad about everything. She just thought that there were people out to get her, particularly people in shul, in ways that were um, in ways that were really scary to her, and it made it impossible for her to function with the people she normally filled her out for. Uh, but she was you know, aware of the world around her. She was aware of being a Jew and being commanded. Um, and questions came up, like whether eating on Yom Kippur, but more bringing shofar, bring, bringing shofar into uh, shofar into blow for her. Whether visitors should come on should come on Shabbat and Yom Kippur, she wrote a very brave column um, detailing her experience, and that got me thinking about. So, if she if she had asked me, no, she didn't. Um, but if she had asked me, Shilas, about what her chiyuvim were during that time, right, how does she relate to God during a time when she, right, during a time when she's mentally ill? What would I tell her? There's a simple halachic category called shota. A shota is exempt from all mitzvot, that's what we generally assume. And so perhaps she simply has none. Right? For that period of time, she has, none of, she has none of the standard Jewish relationship to God. So is that an acceptable outcome? Is that, right, is that a sensitive outcome? Uh, manic, now we should recognize that you know, manic depressive illness is something that goes on through life. Uh, schizophrenia is worse, right? It, um, it accelerates. So, I want to start thinking about what the right, what 
what the halachic life, what the halachic or Jewish religious life of people with these sorts of conditions are supposed to be. So you have one framework, which is Alzheimer's, a second framework, which is um, which is mental illness, not owing to not not dealing to intellectual decay, but dealing to some kind of loss of contact with loss of judgment. And the third case, which comes up in lots of cases, which, which lots of shuls deal with, uh, are uh, children with Down syndrome. When you um, do, do you run bar mitzvahs for kids with, with Down syndrome, when we spend lots of time you know, saying you know, we denigrate the American culture, which thinks the bar mitzvah is about the party and not about the achrayut. So what do you do when you have a mitzvah for somebody who you're not going to hold achrayi in that way? You're not going to hold them responsible. So what does it mean for them to be chayav? Do you have a question or you're just stranded there? Okay. All right, so that, that's the... I want you to think about those three kinds of cases. People, who, people whose capacity was once, uh, was once full adult but has diminished. People whose capacity will never reach full adult. And people who have full adult intellectual capacity but have some kind of other disability that prevents them from having what we might, right, might call full adult responsibility, what sort of religious life do they have? Like, what does halacha have to say to them? Maybe all we have to say to them is, come back when you're better. Or, well, that's a pity. The Torah says that um, if a Talmud Chacham forgets all his learning, you still have to respect them because both the Luchot and the broken Luchot were left in the Aron. So we respect them, but halacha is really irrelevant now. Maybe we should treat children um, with severe uh, intellectual delays as permanent children. Okay. Do we have that framework? Okay. So now I'm going to start with the thing where everything fell apart yesterday. Uh, so I started, I started yesterday. I don't write that, by the way. Um, I started by with a presumption that students would believe that it mattered whether such people had a religious life that was based on being halachically michuyav or not. Uh, that it would matter right, that because you can always say, well, people who have no obligations whatsoever, they can do whatever they want. So if it makes them feel good to wave a palm branch around on Sukkot. Let them wave a palm branch around, around Sukkot. We don't care. We should treat them entirely with pastoral kindness and let them have whatever illusions they wish. But it doesn't matter, right? Uh, right? Another exchange is no. Right? That is, right? That's illusion, and then we're going to be lying to them half the time. And we, really, what matters is not so much whether they feel good. It matters what they are. What is their relationship to God? So that was the right. That was my premise: was that it would make sense to students to say that, wow, it makes a um, it makes a real difference whether you are mechuyav or whether you're just doing something because it feels like because it feels like the thing you should do. I had two reasons for thinking that that would be something that students automatically got. One is that we have a whole fight about gender, which uh, right, we have a massive conversation about gender, and the fundamental basis of the conversation is how do we deal with this, with men being mitzvim ve'osim and women being enam mitzvot ve'osot about mitzvot aseishas mangrama or or things like that. So it sounds like in a different part of the conversation where people are deeply invested that the category of tzivui makes a, right makes makes a real difference. And secondly, I began, this is the first page of the Makarot, I cited a, uh, a section of Ravarin Lichtenstein's um, the work mediated by uh, uh, Rabbi Ruben Ziegler, another graduate of the Hamavasar tree, uh, editor-in-chief two years after me. Um, who, uh, in which Lichtenstein writes that, uh, I'll give you the, the one-sentence summary, that the essence of being Jewish is having a relationship with God which is oriented around God being the mitzaveh and we being the mitzuvim. Right? The God is the commander and we are the commanded, and that framework of commandedness is the, perhaps the central Jewish religious experience. This is the ground for which yeah, Rav Lichtenstein famously 
so far as I'm told, right, banned, you know, the only book he banned on ideological grounds from Gush was Ayn Rand, because all of Ayn Rand was antithetical to the to the um, to the mitzvah relationship. It's all about autonomy. We could have a conversation some other point about uh, whether that was fair to Ayn Rand entirely. Um, I like Ayn Rand. I'll confess that. I have a Masora. My Rebbe reverse this way. <laughs> that Ayn Rand is that Ayn Rand is salvageable, though I'd read Ayn Rand long before that. Um, so let me ask: right? how, many, how many of you does it make sense? Right? Is, it, is it a good intuitive starting point that a person's religious life is different if they are commanded or mechuyav, such that it makes a difference to us to determine whether it's possible? to apply the categories of mechuyav and mitzvah to people in these sorts of conditions? Or does it really not matter if you're doing the same thing? So why should it matter whether you're doing it because it's a halachic obligation and because God commands you or because it feels good Thank you. And, um, and maybe it's even the right thing to do? Yes, thank you. What's your name? Ari Morrison. Ari Morrison, yes. I think it definitely matters if you're Makuya. Because, um, like, in, first of all, um, kind of when, um, when different things become harder to do, um, not just, like, for a person because they have a mental disability, but also just, like, if they're in a tough spot one day, if they're in a tough situation, um, if, if you're a Kuya, you're going to act very differently toward your Judaism than if you're not. Because if you're not, you can always justify not doing something. Um, and like if you're in a tough situation one day, like you're traveling or whatever, and, um, and it's just like not convenient for you to do something like keep kosher one day. Um, if you feel like you're obligated to keep kosher, then you're going to try a lot harder. So let me ask you, I'll push you on this. Okay. Suppose I lie to you and I tell you are Mechuyav. And I convince you. Does it matter whether you are Mechuyav or not, or only whether you think you're Mechuyav? Um, I think you could argue that um, it only matters if you think you're Mechuyav, but I think that's also a lot of people's problem with religion in general, is that they think it's just dictated by the people in charge. And they say, like, oh, they're just telling you you're obligated in this. Like, like you can interpret God your own way. You can interpret the Bible your own way. Um, uh-huh. Okay. So I think at the end of the day, it really matters. Like, people's perception is going to be one thing. Like, none of us know what's going to happen when, when, like, we die. And God tells us, like, the real situation. But okay, but let's... I'm inclined to think it matters. Okay. Good. Other people? I wonder, in order for me to approach the question of, say, whether this woman, whether it matters to me, whether in fact I think she, right, she, it's permitted to make the bracha, whether I think in fact that the the woman who is mentally ill is um, isn't right is entitled to uh, right, whether we should we should bring someone in to blow shofar for her. That's a, that's a value. Even if, right, even if it's not going to make make her illness better, whether uh, whether when a kid with Down syndrome turns bar mitzvah, I tell them to make the real bracha, or I tell them to do something else which they won't notice whether it's the real bracha or not. Right, so that right, so all those questions to me depend on whether it matters for the rest of us. Right, does it matter whether you're or not? Yes. What's your name? Daniel. Daniel. Um, I don't think that there should, even if they're mentally ill, and even if they're going to be a child mentally for the rest of their lives, I don't think it's right to deceive them into thinking thinking that they're obligated for something, even though they're not. I don't think it's right to, you know, pretend or to, you know, like have the whole pretend bar mitzvah done. Okay, you're bar mitzvah now, you're just like, so le- good. So let's not pretend. Yeah. So now my question is: so Let's suppose that lying is out of the picture. Right. So does it matter whether I actually make them mechuyav? Does it change who they are? It's an important part of if you are either taking something that they're not obligated to do and making it part of who they are, 
or you're just letting it be as they are because it's not a part of who they are. They're not obligated to. So, do you, do you have a rooting interest when I get asked the Shaila? All right, are they Chayav or not? Do you have a rooting interest? Um, I am indifferent myself. Well, what do you mean? Suppose I were to walk over to you and say, guess what? Right? You know what? Somebody just asked me a question about whether you're Chayav or not. And, you know, and it turns out you could live your religious life just as you are now, just you would have no obligations. You could make all the same choices, but we're going to give you, right, you know, someone comes out from evidence and says that you, Daniel, have a free pass now. You can do, right? You, right? You no longer have the, this framework of halacha. It's entirely voluntary. But I would choose to do it then. Would you choose to do it, or would you cho- say, you, or would you choose to be to be obligated to do it? I choose to be obligated to do Why? it. Why? Because it's something that's important to me. That's a part of it. But I don't think that the choice should be placed upon somebody that's not, uh, or I don't think it should be dictated to somebody that doesn't have that framework yet or doesn't know or doesn't doesn't know that they have the option, tell them, oh, you, or or the obligation necessarily, and tell them, oh, this is what you have to do. Uh, so just hide the fact okay. that they're not required to So do. I'll push it one more step further. Suppose, God forbid, right, you became mentally ill in one of the ways we've analyzed it. And so now that you come and you ask me the Shiloh, does it matter to you, right? And the question is, the question you ask is a broad question. When I am in this condition... Do I have any halachic obligations or not? Do you have a rooting interest in the answer? Probably not. No. Interesting. What did you want to say? What's your name? Arlen. Arlen. Yeah. Um, I think that a distinction ought to be made based on the permanence of the condition. Uh-huh. Meaning, if a person is born with born certain ways out of therefore perhaps not make, make him So the first approach is, is that we, you know, creates a workaround approach. It's where we can pull out this thing called kvot habriot, and there's a laughing principle that this vague category called kvot habriot enables you to violate at least a rabbinic prohibition in some circumstance. And that let me say, for example, in this case, that I, perhaps I could let somebody say a bracha even though I would think it would be a bracha levatala because it would diminish the dignity of the Alzheimer's patients for them to be made to realize that they could no longer fulfill their obligations. Right? That it was net right since they were aware enough to notice that people wouldn't make brachot for them. Right? So that's a workaround. It doesn't change where they are, but it means we have to relate to them in particular ways. And I think that's probably a useful approach in the, um, in the case of Alzheimer's patients in certain, in certain uh, senses. Interested that you're more bothered by saying that somebody who used to be obligated isn't than by saying that somebody is permanently in the category of people who are not obligated. Right? That doesn't seem to bother you as much because perhaps you think that's justified. That's really who they are. Whereas the other people, it's not really who they are somehow. Right? It's not part of their identity to be muhuyat. Right? So that's an interesting argument. Sorry. Yes, what's your name again? My name is Antony. Antony, okay. I think that I think that they should be muhuyat. But I'll give a caveat. Um, I think that God, God will understand these people's limitations, and I think God, like everyone, we understand that a lot of these people aren't capable of understanding or comprehending certain things. And I think God will realise that, and I think that 
they're still going to be judged, but I think that God, they're still, just like in an exam, people who might be dyslexic or something might have extra time or they need a scribe or something, that there are certain limitations. And I think everyone just understands that, but they still, they still should be obligated. Okay, good. So I'm going to introduce three kind, three categories now, which I think we're, we're part of the title at one point, and as a framework for thinking about what we're doing. When we talk about obligation or commandedness, there are three levels in which we can address the issue. One is a metaphysical question. Right? Is this person in a relationship to God of commander and commanded? And we can make the argument, this is, I think, the argument Lichtenstein makes, that there is a fundamental difference between doing things because God told you you had to and doing things not because God told you you had to. That there's a difference between being mitzvah and not being mitzvah Not only that you're more likely to do certain things, maybe you're more likely not to do them if you're commanded. That's what Tosfet argues. That the reason that you get more reward for being mitzvah is because it increases the Yitzhahara, because now you get, you get a uh, transgressive thrill if you, viol- if you violated it. And if no one told you not to do it, then who would care? Uh, you know, whatever, let's say, you know, uh, frog's legs. Any of you have a if it weren't us, or why would anyone want to eat frog's legs? Maybe, maybe you love frog's legs, I don't know. I personally have no Yitzhara for frog's legs. The only possible reason to eat frog's legs would be if I was some kind of rebellious. Uh, so Joseph says you get more reward because you're commanded, because actually it's, right, actually it's harder to keep it in some ways. Okay. Well, one possibility is metaphysics, and the question I want you to really think about right, is, does that mean something to you, to say that the meaning of your action changes depending on whether you are actually commanded or not. I think Lichtenstein tries to argue very strongly that it does, but the essence of the Jewish religious act is to do it because you are commanded. And I think that's where it's a real challenge in modernity, that that's a, that's a concept that people are very bothered by, right? Why, why, why don't I want to do things autonomously? And I have shared that a lot, but I want to raise that issue. Second of all, psychologically and say, okay, you can be obligated, but in order to be obligated, you have to be capable of accepting responsibility. I can't obligate you if I'm not going to hold you responsible for doing it. In what sense does it mean? You're obligated, but it's okay if you don't. So in that notion, right, chiyuv is a, right, is a psychological reality. Some people can be mechuyav because you can hold them responsible, and people who can't be held responsible can't be mechuyav. I can't tell you you're obligated, right, you're obligated to, um, to keep kosher if I know that you're fundamentally incapable of remembering that you have to keep kosher whenever you smell a cheeseburger. Okay, then there's a third category, and this is probably a little bit more radical. They're saying maybe there's a category of legal obligation that is disconnected from both the metaphysics and the psychology. Maybe sometimes we make people mechuyav. Why? Because it's better for them. Or because it enables us to integrate them into society. Maybe we make them not mechuyav because that has better social ramifications. Right? You want to argue that, right, certain, right, that we make women not mechuyav vote on certain things because it enables them to have more options about how to run their life. Uh, or, right, or if you want to argue you know, negative grounds that it reflects status in society. Um, right, right, maybe, maybe we give certain people chiyuvim because maybe we'll give Down syndrome we'll treat Down sin- syndrome um, children as mechuyavim as because the, the, the alternative is that they will be permanently excluded from the adult community we need to treat them legally as adults in order to enable them to treat them socially as adults even though we know that they're not really responsible in the same way, we just assign them the legal category of chiyuv Maybe we'll do the same thing for Alzheimer's patients because that's the way to preserve their dignity. And as opposed to using a workaround and say, well, right, and say, well, when a situation comes up that it seems to be an explicit violation of their dignity, we'll apply this workaround called Kvota Briot. That's awkward. People will hesitate. Um, right? You'll end up treating people in, in, right, as less serious infant- and infantilizing them anyway. So it's much better if we just treat them as still Nuchiyav. Even though, when you don't fulfill your mitzvah of Megillah, we're going to say, are you accountable? Of course not. What could you possibly have done? Okay, so those are three categories I want you to be thinking about are metaphysics, and that is a really, I think, important theological question, do you think, or experiential question. Does it matter to you? Should it matter to people whether their religious actions are done in response to a divine command and in relationship to God as the commanded and the commander, or simply because it's the meaningful thing to do? 
Secondly, can one have a halachic concept of obligation for people who are not actually capable of responsibility or a full responsibility? And thirdly, is the legal category of Chiyav related to those notions? Or do we decide legal category of Chiyav on pragmatic grounds? Okay, so now I want to turn to the first, um, the first uh, Hebrew source. I want to read a toast with you. And, um, right in, and get your reactions as to what this Tosfut means, what its basis is. Do you find it? Do you find the argument that Tosfut makes compelling, and how do you understand it? So Tosfut is dealing with a. Um, the, the, the Mishnah says that a blind person is entitled to read the brachot of Kriyashma, um, even though right, you have at least one bracha which is challenging, which is Yotzer HaMeorot. You have a blessing which is a thank you for light. So how do you make a bracha? Right? How does some blind make a, make a thank you for light? The Gemara in the end has a beautiful answer. Uh, the story of Rabiosi and the Rabiosi uh, meeting a blind person who's carrying a torch at night, and he says to him, "Why are you carrying a torch at night? Doesn't make a difference to you." And the response is, "I carry a torch at night so other people will see me and help me and and, and assist me from fall and prevent me from falling into pits." So all of us are grateful. All of us are all of us are grateful for light, but. That's right. The then it follows that the Behuda says that there are two kinds of blind people. People who are blind from birth and people who um, who become blind. People who are blind from birth, he says, um, cannot um, cannot be the leaders of Shema because they cannot say Yotzer HaMeorot. You can't say Yotzer HaMeorot if you've never seen the sun. Okay. Gemara has the possibility that maybe it doesn't mean blind people at all. Rishalmi says that maybe it means people who were raised in caves. Okay, not our, right? Not our, not not our issue. But Tosfos asked the following question. He says we learned elsewhere in Bavakama, Rabbi Yudah holds that a blind person is exempt from all mitzvot. A person exempt from all mitzvot can't fulfill other people's obligations. Therefore, according to Rabbi Yudah, any blind person should not be able to lead the Shema. So how can Rabbi Yudah have this position suddenly? That a blind person, that a person who, is, who becomes blind after time can lead the Shema. A person who becomes blind after time, according to Rabbi Yudah, is still exempt from all mitzvot. Okay, so you know, right, Tosfos says there's a contradiction here. Tosfos seems to suggest that a particular kind of blind person can lead the Shema. Rabbi Yudah holds that blind people are exempt from all mitzvot. To which Tosfos uh, answers, if you look at it eight lines in, Tosfos says, V'od yesh lomar, we can, we can resolve this contradiction differently, not by saying that we're talking about people raised in caves. The Mari Shapir Besuma, we're talking about a genuinely blind person. The Hadid Patrin and Hatam Suma, and when Rabbi Huda there exempts a blind person from mitzvot, Hainu Minha Torah. That is only from Deoraita mitzvot. And only on a Deoraita level. Aval Midirabanan Miha Chayav. But a blind person is still rabbinically obligated in all the mitzvot of the Torah. All the mitzvot that sighted people are obligated in Deoraita. Blind people, according to Rabbi Huda, are obligated in Drabanan. How? Why? So Tosas goes on and he tells you. Shilo yehei kinachri. So that we should, right, so that this blind person, according to Rabbi Huda, again, we, let's assume we don't pass like Rabbi Huda, I'm just interested in the position. Right, this blind person should not be not Jewish. And he should not have any he should not have the Jewish religion as part of him at all. And he says this is not like women who have the right who are in the category of commandedness, they just are not obligated in all commands. This is just intolerable. Therefore, Tosa says, we, the rabbis, must have According to Rabbi Huda, the rabbis must have created a whole new category of rabbinic obligation, which is that there is a category of people who are, as a class, exempted from all Torah obligations, and all the obligations that God went out of his way in the Torah to exempt them from, we the rabbis put back on them because the result of exempting them is inconceivable. Now, what, is Tosis, what is the basis of this claim? How would the rabbis do this? How do you understand it? This is a wild thing. The Torah said, these people are not obligated. And the rabbis said, what? That can't be. 
So we're going to obligate them. Even though the Torah went out of its way not to. So what, what do you understand? Right? Where does, what, what, on what grounds can Tosas make a claim like this? Yes. Possibly because... What's your name, by the way? Max. Max, okay, Possibly yeah. because if, you, if you're exempt from Torah, but if from the Torah obligation, but if you're obligated by the rabbis, then if you're unable to perform any of the mitzvah, the punishment is less severe than had you originally been uh, commanded to arrive at So you think God wanted this? Yes. But... What's wrong? What's wrong with leaving them and just saying, you know what? They can, they can do it. No one's stopping them from doing mitzvot. Because it goes back to the question before: if we should do commandments because it's a meaningful thing to do, or because there's a connection between the commander and the being commanded. So you're buying my thesis that Tosfot thinks that that really matters, and he can't imagine that we would leave blind people in a condition where they can't relate to God that way. Yeah. Okay, right? So I tend to, that, that's, that's the strongest read of Tosfut for me, right? That Tosfut is built off that claim. And then you can see, we say, ah, so now we can ask ourselves, what about people who have manic depression? Do we also want, right, if we have a choice, I might write the strong version of the thesis would be, anytime we have a choice in which we can create a relationship between human beings and God, the commander commanded or not, we would prefer to do it. Yes? I think it also creates a balance, right? Because you talked, you talked about, you talked about like Chiyo being able to be part of the community, uh-huh. and even though they're right, that like Max said, they're not, they're not obligated. Therefore, if they really can't do, they have no fear of punishment or uh, any repercussions for their actions. At the same, at the same time, they can still be part of the community if they want to. So, so, so it puts these people who are disabled in a very, in a very um, flexible gray, gray area where they, where they can. Um, where they can participate as part of the community wherever they're able to, and wherever they're not to, they, they have the leeway to sort of sit back. So we can say it's, a, it's more a social thing, that well, it's a way of I letting them... Social, I think it's a social aspect of it, but I think it's, uh, you, could, you could say it any way you want. I'm, just, I'm putting it in the way of social, I'm, but you can also put it in terms of chiyof, right? You could, say, you could say, in terms of being commanded, right, this gives them the uh, opportunity to actually fulfill the commandments as they're commanded to them. But if they can't do it, then they right. It's but okay. It's, it's just what's your name of the way? Duality, Shmuel. Shmuel. So Shmuel and Max, I think, give you the two ways of reading Tosfut. The maximal way of reading Tosfut is that there's a we there's, there's this I use a fancy word. It's not so logical reality to the condition of being mitzvah, and we have an interest in creating that wherever people are capable of genuinely having it. And right, so we do that. So blind people, it's unimaginable to us that there would be a human being who is capable of that relationship with God who we would not give it to. Another possibility is, look, each case, you know, with blind people, we don't want them to be fully excluded from the community, so we create some kind, right, some kind of quasi-obligation that lets them be part of the community to some extent. They can reach out, maybe not Parsha Zohar, because that's the Orisa. Um, and for mentally ill people, we'll deal with the same question. We'll try and figure out the way that is best for their health and for our community's ethics of inclusion. Yes, Dan? Um, I think the way I'm reading it, like, Tosua just can't imagine... A world where anyone who's like mentally or physically disabled to a certain extent is basically not Jewish. Like, if there's no chiyah, what's keeping you attached to the religion at all? I think that's what he's saying. Like, he's saying that if someone becomes blind, you're going to say, like, he's just not connected to Judaism anymore. Like, if God's not commanding him, there's nothing there. Okay, so this is right. So, that, so you're, I think it's very important to recognize that the status of Tzivoy here sounds like it's something that's fundamentally about the Jewish religious experience as opposed to the human religious experience. And the difference between the human and the Jewish religious experience is Sivoy. Right? So that would be an interesting claim. We could talk about whether that makes us comfortable to say that, right, to say that that's the... Okay, so I want to problematize exactly that. Uh, so we're going to read now a selection from uh, Igros Moshe. So this is Volume 9, which there are issues about Volume 9. Uh, this is a really interesting section of Volume 9 of Igros Moshe, uh, which appears to be, so far as I can tell, uh, publications of Rav Moshe Feinstein's brother, who died many, many years earlier. And so when they were putting together the collections, they found, you know more about his Rabbi Tessin? Sorry, sorry, Mordechai. He died in Siberia. He died in Siberia, yeah. So this is, you know, so this is a, there's a mitzvah to get people's, you know, Torah of people to say, 
family, I get to say family legend. Allegedly, my father's father, Shlomo Klapper, wrote a full parish on Rambam, uh, which was lost in Siberia. Uh, so I always hope someday. You know, YUSSR or somebody like that will come into some library in, some library in Siberia and find, um, and find my grandfather's parish, which he never had the heart to try writing again. So I have a particular attraction to people who would recover, recover, recover those kinds of lost um, things. So Rebecca Feinstein's brother, you know, we know nothing else about, I think, um, intellectually, I think here has a spectacularly powerful piece. I wonder how you react to it. So he raises a wonderfully circular question. According to Tosfot, we said, aha, a blind person is exempt from all mitzvot. But that's inconceivable, so we make an obligated dirabanan. Now, many of you are probably thinking now, should be. So let's suppose, um, here, actually call on people. that wake people up? Uh, her. So I have a volunteer who hasn't, who hasn't asked a question yet. Not all of you at once. Her, you look awake. What's your name? Me? Yeah. I'm Gedalia. You're Gedalia. Excellent. Gedalia, why do you have to listen to rabbinic commandments? Uh, this is the Torah you have Excellent. So if you are exempt from all Torah commandments, do you have to listen to the rabbis? No. So how could the rabbis make blind people obligated rabbinically if the Torah said they're exempt from all biblical commandments? Shouldn't that include the biblical commandment about listening to rabbis? So that is the question that Mordechai Feinstein came up with. And I said, yes, that's the right question. Bingo. Um, and his answer, right? So if you, if you, if you take, take a look on page three, he says, uh, eight, right, we're looking at line three. He says, How could the rabbis impose this obligation on the blind person? Why is he obligated to listen to them? Since he is not part of the entire Torah framework of obligation, he's also exempt from the, from the, from the do not of don't stray from what the rabbis tell you. So Joseph has this deep intuitive sense that it can't be possible they're not obligated. But the problem is once they're not obligated, it's not possible to make them obligated. You're bootstrapping. To which Roy Feinstein comes up with what I think is a really astonishing framework. Um, and also really quite brilliant. He says, He says, I can explain this if I put one other logical argument in front of you. He says, I investigated what should the Allah be a corner who holds that a blind person exempt from all mitzvot? Okay, so we have a general question. If your father comes up to you and says, I just made this awesome cheeseburger for you, it would be profoundly insulting to me were you not to eat this awesome cheeseburger or frog's legs, whatever it is I just made for you. And now you are confronted with a choice. On the one hand, the Torah said, don't eat cheeseburgers. On the other hand, the Torah said, honor your father and mother. So how do you choose? What do you do? I hope this never comes up for any of you, but good to know. What's the answer? Pardon? Ask your rabbi. Ask your rabbi. Uh-huh. Well, we could, we could, you know, we could, we could go. We could create infinite regress. And your father says, and I would find it personally insulting if you were to ask your, right? if you were to think this is the kind of question you should ask your rabbi, right? Well, I will, right? We're not going to let you get out of it that easily. Yeah. You can't eat the cheeseburger. You can't eat the cheeseburger. Yeah. Why can't you eat the cheeseburger? Because the low tasse of the cheeseburger can't be overridden by the assay to the Aha. So that's not really a good, useful rule generally, because generally we think assays can override low assays under certain circumstances. Um, but it's a good svara, yeah? Um, 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 because, because in, in the Pasuk of, in the Pasuk of, um, of, um, um, respecting princesses and Nochei Hashem afterwards, it basically, say, it basically says, Kulcham Chaim Bipodit, right? Everybody's obligated in my, my covenant. If your father would be by extension breaking that covenant, so it all come automatically overrides Bingo. Bingo. Okay, actually right. The Gemara says that we say, aha, well your father is obligated to, is obligated to honor God and 
Therefore, your father is not entitled to command you to violate God's orders because your father is also obligated to honor God. Comes along Rabbi Feinstein and says, but what if your father isn't obligated? What if your father is blind? Your father is blind, your father has, according to Rabbi Yudah, your father has no such obligations. And now I ask the question again, if your blind father made you a cheeseburger, do you eat the cheeseburger? So we could say that, but now, we, now you'll see how it gets dangerous. We could say, well, how could you possibly have an obligation of kavod towards somebody who has no obligations? But you don't want to say that. We want to say you have an obligation to honor your father even if your father has no obligations. I want to say that you have an obligation to honor your father even if your father is mentally ill, even if your father has end-stage Alzheimer's. So that can't work. So what, so what do we say in the end? Now we've lost the logic of the Gemara is that you, is that you have, to, you have to follow the halakha because your father is as obligated as you are, but now your father isn't. Yes? His cover still overrides his cover in terms of the perspective of you, the person who's, trying, who's, who's being asked to eat the cheeseburger. You, you, you cannot forego cover Hashem to, to, to keep it up in. Why not? What? Why not? Why not? Because it supersedes it. Why? Why? Yeah. Because Hashem created us and our, and our parents, our parents just created us. Hashem has. So that's not Kulchem That's an argument that Kvod Hashem beats Kvod Adam. That's not so obvious. What? That's not so obvious. I might think that if there was no notion of Tzivoy, that human dignity is overrides. Overrides Kvod Hashem. There's another Pasuk where the Gemara says, which is designed to equate Kibbut Avayim to Kibbut Hashem. There's a Hekish, Kabeda Hashem Ehoncha. Yet, yet, here in this puzzle, yet here in the puzzle of Kibbutz Avayim, we have an, we have an override for it. But only so, for people who are obligated, <laughs> right? So, okay. So, Rafi Feinstein, gets out of this. So he says, if you look at the bold, the boldest section, he says, even according to Rabbi Yehuda, who thinks that a blind person is exempt from all mitzvot, hine gam suma bevaday chayav lishmo bekol Hashem baruchu. The Summa is certainly still obligated to listen to the word of God. God just didn't command him. So that's a, right, that's a fascinating claim. It says that, that even a corner of Yehuda, we're not claiming that this isn't the person who is capable of commandedness. We're, right, this is a person who, if God were ever to say something to them, they would have to listen to him. It just happens that God, has, that God has not chosen to command them. But they're still a commandable person, and all human beings, right, all human beings should be living in anticipation of the time when God commands them to do something. Therefore, if Einstein says, that, right, he says, and he goes on, he says, right, there's no question that had God chosen to command a blind person, he would be obligated. There's nothing about a blind person that makes them unsusceptible to command. They're psychologically capable of commandedness, and the law is a reflection in that sense of psychological capacity. He says, because we have to say, pasuk. You have to say that there's an a priori presumption that all existing creations have an obligation to obey God. And you knew that before you ever got into the Torah. Because that weren't the case, we would have the same kind of circularity. What right does the Torah have to command? All the Torah is is the Word of God. The Torah can't say, you can't get into circularity and say, well, the Torah says you have to obey God's commands. That doesn't help. So you have to believe that there's a prior condition of commandedness for all human beings. And that prior condition of commandedness for all human, for all human beings, he says, is, um, is, right, is, um, is, sufficient the, uh, is, is sufficient to mean, therefore, that your blind father is also obligated in the kavod of God. It's just their obligation right now has no practical expression. Because God has not chosen to command them. But you can still say, because the blind parent is obligated in the honor of God, it's just their obligation has no practical expressions. And that, 
he says, now comes along Tosfut, and Tosfut says, the rabbis come along and say, okay, so we have an acknowledgement that this person is capable of being commanded, and now he says he has a radical understanding of the mitzvah of lo tasur. If you look at the, um, sorry, we're five, six, seven, eight, nine, uh, eleven, li- um, twelve lines from the bottom. It says lididon didon. So regarding to our case, now that we have proven that a blind person would be obligated to follow mitzvot if he were commanded, trust he's not commanded. And now he says, as I have proven earlier, shegeder lo tasur. What does the mitzvah lo tasur mean? The mitzvah lo tasur is not actually an obligation. What it is is a delegation. God gives the rabbis the authority to command in his place. So when you listen to the rabbis, it's not really because of the verse that says God commands you not to listen to the rabbis. What the verse tells you is that all rabbinic commands are really the same as divine commands. And therefore, a blind person can be obligated in rabbinic commands because they're divine commands, and a blind person can be obligated in divine commands. It's just until the rabbis came along and made them, there were none. So that's where, that's where Feinstein's, or Mordechai Feinstein's solution. So on the one hand... This is, a, I think, a spectacular um, save of Tosfut. The, circular, the circularity question is devastating. How can the rabbis command you when the Torah exempts you if the rabbinic authority comes from, right, comes from the Torah's command? And the answer is no. Rabbinic authority doesn't come from the Torah's command. Rabbinic authority comes from the innate, the innate obligation of fully functional human beings to obey God's word. The downside, though, is we lost the special Jewishness of Sivoy. Because now all human beings exist in this relationship. Now the question you have to ask is, so all human beings have to know what God's will is. God's will is always for you to do the right thing. So then what does it matter? Whether you do it because you're commanded or not. You were obligated anyway. Listen to God's will. So you get right through... So, on the one hand, Ray Feinstein comes, gains this spectacular restoration of dignity for the blind in Rabbi position. They are, in fact, eminently... Right, the fact of not being commanded doesn't mean they're not obligated. On the other hand, the question is, so why do we really care whether people are halakhically obligated? They still have the same relationship to God, which is everybody has the obligation to obey God's will. Okay, so I want to start um, framing this in more explicitly halakhic um, terms. So we turn the page to um, page four, and I want to start complicating it in certain halakhic ways. So the Minchas um, Chinuch says, interesting question, he says, in order, in order to bring a carbon Pesach, you have to be circumcised, and Ariel can't bring a carbon Pesach, and also all your slaves have to be circumcised. If you have an Eved who has not had a Brit Milah, you can't bring it. We'll leave aside the whole incongruity of rules about Avadim and the carbon Pesach, which should, you should all be bothered by that. Now we're going to bracket it. How can we have rules about Avadim for carbon Pesach, which is Anochi Hashem Lukecha Avadim? If that doesn't keep you up at night, it should now. There are lots of things that should keep you up at night. It's fine. I don't know if Rabbi Sussman encourages people keeping staying up at night. As long as they get the chakras in the morning. And, and I know that there are things that bother me that don't bother all, that don't bother everyone. Not everyone has this. There was a there's a sugi in Yoma that when I was your age, I think, I woke up one day and realized it didn't work, and there was just this massive flaw, and I couldn't sleep for weeks. And I would go around asking all these Rosh Yeshiva, what's the question? They would give me the obvious answer, which was wrong. And I would explain to them what was wrong. And I figured they wouldn't sleep ever again either, but I never heard of anything like that. Um, so not everyone's bothered by these questions. Um, but that, that one, I think, like how we can have rules without an infrared carbon test, that should keep you up at least one night somewhere in your life. Um, but what we're interested in halakhically is, so what happens if you are a minor and you inherited slaves? Can you be included in the Korban Pesach, even though your slaves have not had a Brit Milah? After all, you're a minor, so you don't have Chiyuvim. So even though there is, right, 
there is a chiv on the goof of your evid to have a brit milah, maybe that doesn't apply to you as owner. Gershom Ben says, if you look at the bold section, he says, even though a katan cannot be commanded regarding the circumcision of his slaves, because a katan is not called a ben mitzvah, what we call now a bar mitzvah, he says, no, really, children are ben mitzvot. This is a fascinating claim. There are people who are bar mitzvah, just they can't be commanded. But they are, they're halachically in the category of the mitzvah. But because psychologically, it says, since they're not psychologically capable, so we don't hold them accountable. But when it comes to the question of status, are they a ben mitzvah or not? The answer is, they are a ben mitzvah. And therefore, a child who has an evid who has not had a brit milah cannot participate in the korban pesah. Because there is a sense in which they are legally in default. That's one kind of complication where the Minister says there are people, and he says, that, he says that as if this is a coherent statement. There are ben mitzvahs, just they can't be commanded. What would that mean? Okay, go a different way. The, um, the Ridbaz in Hilchot Edut Perik Tet says, Hashotep Pasul Pasul Edut, so a Shotep, whatever that means right now, so it says, is 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 uh, invalid for testimony. So the Rabbah says the Ramam wrote wrote the Tam Lefish a no ben mitzvot. You're exempt from testimony because you are not bar mitzvah. Kilomar shu patur mina mitzvot, which means that a shota is exempt from mitzvot. Viafel pishem mekayim mixat mitzvot lefamim, and even though a shota sometimes fulfills some mitzvot, havi kimish eno mitzvah veose. He's doing it as a non-commanded person. The and so like the blind person according to Rabbi Huda, he's not in the same category as women and slaves who are only not commanded about some mitzvot. He can't be commanded about any mitzvot. He's loud b'nei mitzvot, Torah, and therefore he is, and therefore he is exempt. So the Rabbah says that what happens to a shota is we really we really move them into the category of the person who has no such obligation. They can't have their relationship with God. It doesn't mean their mitzvot are meaningless. Their mitzvot are still mitzvah ve'ose. That's an interesting challenge. How can you be mitzvah? Ain't no mitzvah ve'ose if you're not capable of. Up. Maybe you can only be any mitzvah ve'ose. I might have said. I might have said that women get schar for the mitzvot they do that they're not obligated in because they're capable of obligation. But people who aren't capable of obligation, their mitzvot are meaningless. I might have said that. Uh, the Ritva says no. Their mitzvot aren't meaningless. They're just not as much. They don't fit into this category. Okay, so now I want to show you. What, why, why, what, right, why within the halachic framework this can be a um, this can be a really dangerous um, dangerous notion. So there's a work called the Halachok Tanot, uh, which is a collection of shavuot from the 16th century uh, in Turkey, uh, which are fascinating, brilliant, still have um, significant impact in halacha, but they exist in their own bubble where it's not clear that he cared so much about what other people thought at all. in Lenin. So he can say really odd things, which then make their way into the tradition. So I want you to take a look at his opening question. Somebody who kills. A cheresh we're going to treat now, a deaf mute we're going to treat now, in, their, in, the, in that universe, the deaf mute is somebody... Is treated as equivalent to a shota. So somebody who kills somebody who is not of sound mind, what's the halacha? And if you skip down to the right, skip down to the next line of the right, right, he says, even though there is right, there might you might have to pay damages um, if you harm them. Maybe somebody who kills them since they're not the mitzvot. What's the big deal? What makes them human? So what's your answer? How do you know this is right? Is, is this tolerable? To have a halachic suggestion that there are human beings whom there's no prohibition really against killing? 
Oh, it's certainly not murder to kill them. So Lachitana takes a very, right, he says, look, if they're not capable of that kind of relationship with God, that you tell, that you say that they're not, they're not capable of the obligation, obligation is what makes us human, so then what makes them human? So that's right to me why right that's it's not a terrible argument in a formal halachic system and he has a second shiva, which is about whether you could be Mikhail Shabbos for them. But if you take the logic that the reason you can Mikhail Shabbos is, well, you know what, you're breaking Shabbos but they have religious potential, so you're trading your breaking Shabbos for their religious potential. Which we you know, epigrammatically we say violate one Shabbat so that he'll keep many Shabbatot. Um, what happens with somebody who has a religious potential? In this framework. They're never going to keep any Shabbos. So that's why, to me, it really matters that we... It really matters whether we regard people. Right? This is an extreme, and you can look at all of literature, you know, that generally the reaction to this tshuva is shock and horror. Not reading, you know, it's still on the Barilan, but the reaction to this one is shock and horror. But it tells you that there are real consequences to treating people as completely outside the framework of obligation. This is the extreme way of, of handling it, but the truth is that the way in which we integrate people in a lawful society depends very much on whether we see them in any society. depends very much on whether we see them as capable of assuming the obligations of an adult in that society. So the question is then, to me, it matters a very great deal whether we try and construct a category, categories of obligation for people who are mentally ill because it really shapes the whole way in which we treat them. Do you treat them as children? Do you treat them as remnants of human beings? Or do you treat them as, or do you treat them as human beings who are going through a tough time but are really still full adult members of the community? Now, you, the problem is you can't treat them as full adult members of the community because they're mentally ill. And they're things you can't hold them accountable to. Okay, so here I'm going to... Um, yes? The one that depends on mental illness, right? Sure. Like, if somebody has memory problems, I treat them as an adult with a disability. Somebody, if somebody has, has like, a problem with, with mental maturity, right, or has some sort of developmental disorder, then I probably might treat them a little bit more, maybe like a child, because that's what they need. Right? Even because it wouldn't offend them and it would be better for them, right? So I feel, I feel, like, I feel like we can't just give one to... So people who have like given emotional ages, right? So that's a really interesting challenge, like how you treat Down syndrome children. So I'll just tell you, for the record, right now, the standard PSAC is that if you have the mental age of a six-year-old, you have a bar mitzvah and you are chayav. And we just treat you, and we just treat you as exempt. We treat you as not liable, but obligated. And that, to me, is a fascinating... That's the position that Rav Pinchel Scheinberg wrote in a famous article. Rav Shlomo Zalman endorsed it. And um, it's where it comes up in the shul I go to, which is which, and I think is being a ongoing framework, is that so Down syndrome was a fairly simple thing. We could sort of frame what it did. It doesn't make so much difference to their lives. We don't really know. We just and that to me is is a, a separation, really, in many ways, of the legal and psychological reality. And it seems to work in the framework of inclusion for now. Uh, where it comes much harder is autistic kids who don't have intellectual limitations. They have emotional limitations. And it was one, one comment that a, uh, a mother once made to me, which I stayed with me, which I think is really powerful. said, well, you know, my son just can't fulfill the haftalarecha kamocha because he doesn't have empathy. He can do everything you tell him. He can accept responsibility. He just can't really think about what it's like to be someone else. So that was a really like, so what have I told you? You're high in all mitzvot except the haplerecha kamocha? Uh, right, that was a really, really interesting middle ground. So what we, right now, for better or for worse, but it raises challenges. You know, whether, when you treat somebody as bar mitzvah, that has consequences. And you treat, you know, when you, um, simple consequences it has is when you give aliyot to people with the mental age of six-year-olds and not to women. That sort of intensifies the challenge. Yes? Um... What would you say about people who are fully mentally functioning, not just like intellectually, but like, let's say somebody who's sociopathic or psychopathic who, who genetically doesn't have any empathy, but can fully, but, but, but in, term, in terms of their cognitive ability and their emotional cognitive ability are fully functioning. 
That's right. So do I? Do I could construct the world in which I say sociopaths are chayiv only so be adam lamakom, but not be adam lachaviro. Right? I could I could construct. So is there a value in doing that because they are adults? And I can treat. It's okay to treat, perhaps, Down syndrome kids as, as kids. Maybe it would be okay, but we don't end up asking that way. Maybe we, maybe we, autistic people who haven't had that kind of right, who aren't ready, who will never perhaps reach certain kinds of insight. Maybe, but people who are aware that they're mentally ill, but the part of when the part of them that's not mentally ill is just what it always was. That's much harder. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to um, construct an argument for you as to how one might be... Or this is an argument I constructed um, for, let's say, the case of, the, of, of my student in the, uh, in the, right, who was hospitalized in Rosh Hashanah, and it's what my students and I are in the process of finishing our true vote about. I want to construct an argument for you, and I want you to think about whether this is an argument that you think is sufficiently compelling to build actual Psakov. So here we go. And we're on page 7 now. So the, um, the, Gemara, the Gemara says that they sent a message to Shmuel, the second source, Rosh Hashanah Chav Cherem and Aleph. Gemara said they sent a message to Shmuel's father, which they said, if somebody was compelled to eat matzah, you, you fulfilled the obligation to eat matzah even if you were forced. It's a sort of, when the Gemara says, who forced him? If he was forced by a demon... Well, then he's just insane. And people who are episodically insane, while they're possessed by the demon, they can't fulfill any mitzvot, so it doesn't count. So what it must be, Persians came around. Now, I don't understand the reality. This is another thing that, I don't think it should keep you up at night, but it should while away your afternoons. Uh, Trying to figure out, apparently, the reality was that in Persia, on the first night of Pesach, bands of non-Jews wandered around forcing Jews to eat matzah. What? I don't know why. That seems to be right. This is a realistic case. Who would force you to eat matzah when there's a mitzvah? Persians. Conspiracy theory, right? This was the early notion of Chabad. Right? Instead of, have you put on film today? Hire Persians, right? To make you put on the film on the first night of Pesach, they would be stuffing the matzah down your throat. I, I don't know. I don't have any other description of the reality here. That's what the Gemara says, right? Somebody who was compelled by Persians to eat matzah on the first night of Pesach um, is um, fulfills fulfills their obligation, as opposed to somebody who is compelled by a demon because they're insane. Okay. Now the um, the Gemara the Gemara the Gemara follows that up by saying that there um, that. The statement that if you're compelled by Persians to eat matzah, you're yotze, Rava says that also means that if you that if you blow shofar for musical purposes, right? You happen, you know, you're listening to some symphony, and you, the horn section comes on, and you grab your shofar and you blow along in order to be the horn section of the symphony. Rava says, well, if you can be forced to eat matzah and yotze, then you can blow shofar for music. You're also yotze. Okay, we're all fine. We're all fine with that. Rashi says that that text is not that is that his teacher had a text which was different in his um, in his in his teacher's text. The it didn't say that Rava said hatokea l'shir yatsa. Didn't say if you blow shofar for music you're yotze. It said hatokea l'shade yotze. If you blow shofar to a demon, Rashi adds in order to get rid of the demon. Then you are, then you are Yotze. So now we have a fascinating Gemara that way. It says that if you blow shofar while you, if you eat matzah while possessed by a demon, you're not Yotze. But if you blow shofar in order to get rid of the demon, you are Yotze. But let's be careful, right? You can't blow shofar to get rid of a demon unless you're possessed by a demon. So these two stages, these two stages actually contradict. So Rabbi Talishburn, uh was a um, the Rabbaz, who you can see his biography on the page. Right, is a late nineteenth, early twentieth century Romanian posseg. Um Notices this, and he says there is a difference. There's a difference between somebody who is possessed by a demon and trying to get rid of it through this act. 
and somebody who is doing something because they are possessed by a demon. Okay, so now I want to put this into a um, into a, into a, a contemporary and um, therapeutic framework it's called insight. Some people, right? Some people are mentally ill, but they have insight into their mental illness, meaning they are aware of which of their actions are done as an expression of their illness, and which of their actions are not. Right. So, the, um, right. So, I have students with OCD. So, students, so people with OCD. They're, sometimes they can't tell the difference, and that's, right, and, that's, and, right, and that's really bad. But often, part of what you can do is say, is, oh, I know that the reason that I am repeating, I am now saying, for the 45th time, or that I'm stuck because I'm not sure if I said z or s. Or, um, or more correctly, let's suppose there are people who are stuck in a loop because they know you're supposed to be ma'arich in the dalit of echad. Right. Anyway, is it possible to be marich in the dalad of echad without saying, without making the there a shvanach under the dalad? Anytime you say echad, you're going to say echad did, right? So if you're obsessed by having to be marich by echad, but not saying echad, you will spend your whole life just saying kriyashma. You all know why that is. How could we have halacha that the marich in the dalad if you can't do it? Because the dalad wasn't the did. The dalad was a. Th- you can say echad. That would be fine, but once the once the dollar switched from a from a from a the to a duh, it became impossible. So if you have OCD, then you can end up your whole life just saying. Nope, did it again. Darn. So right at some point, people can right people can recognize right. Many people can recognize. You know what? I am no longer doing this because I want to fulfill the mitzvah of kriyashma. I'm doing this because I'm ill. People with manic depression can also sometimes, not consistently, but sometimes they can say, this is something I am doing as an expression of my illness, and this is something that I am doing despite my illness. Now, in the manic part of that, it's actually a more complicated thing because mania actually raises your religious awareness. So actually people who are manic will often end up doing spectacular religious things because they feel so divinely inspired by that. So the question that I wanted to raise is, can I use this rebuzz to say that if you asked me externally, as somebody, right, as a posse, if you asked me, can you be Yotze with a shofar blown by somebody who is possessed by a demon or has manic depression? The answer is you can't know. You can't know why they're blowing shofar. Maybe they're blowing shofar because the demon told them to. Maybe they're blowing shofar because they're trying to get rid of the demon. But if they come and ask me, Half an hour ago, when my meds hadn't kicked in yet, I blew shofar. And I know that I blew the shofar because I wanted to fulfill the mitzvah. It's true. I also was paranoid. And my meds hadn't kicked in and I was sick. But I know that I didn't blow shofar as an expression of that illness. I blew shofar despite that illness. I overcame it to be able to fulfill my obligation. So the argument I wanted to make is that we can say that even though I couldn't paskin for somebody else that they were Yosei, because I don't know if I can trust you, but I can paskin for you that because you know, you don't have to blow shofar again because you are capable of that kind of relationship with God. I can't legally hold you accountable for that relationship. I can't tell you that you're chayav. But you can tell me that you did it as an expression of chayav. Okay, I want to put this in one sentence just from her that there, I want to introduce a distinction between humane and humanist halakha. Humane halakha is halakha that makes things easier on people. Humanist halakha is halakha that really under, that really relates to the way people experience it. So this is not right. Making people chayav is not necessarily humane halakha. It might impose obligations on them and make their life harder. But it's humanist halakha and that is deeply attentive to what their actual experience is. And that's what I was Thanks trying to do. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.